As Russia continues its military assault on Ukraine, how is the invasion affecting the church and people of faith? Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Gutiak of the Arch Eparchy of Philadelphia will tell us. As the incursion into Ukraine enters its second week, how will the U.S. and NATO allies respond, and what role is China playing? President of the Population Research Institute, Stephen Mosier, is here with analysis. And Dean Harmon of Angel Studios explains why crowdfunding could be a new business model for faith-based entertainment. And we'll share some moments from my incredible Mardi Gras ride as Grand Marshal of Endymion and why it matters. The world over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. The military assault on Ukraine is now a week old, and Russia is ramping up assaults on key Ukrainian cities. Meanwhile, President Zelensky continues to plead for more international assistance. Over two million refugees have fled Ukraine to escape the violence. And what about those who remain? And how is the church and the faithful in Ukraine faring amidst the attacks? Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Gutiak of the Archeparchy of Philadelphia is here to tell us. He joins me now at EWTN's Washington studios. Your Grace, thank you for being here. Um, I, 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 I know you've been in touch and in constant contact with the people in Ukraine, specifically the head of the Catholic Church in Kiev. What are they telling you about the situation on the ground there? I had a conversation just a few hours ago with his Beatitude, Svetoslav Shevchuk, and a couple other bishops in Kharkiv, the city that is being bombarded most seriously today. It's terrible. Uh, this uh, war has gone into a stage where Putin is using rocket fire, cruise missiles, hitting civilian targets. Uh, Ukraine has won this war morally. It has united the world. It is winning the mm. war on the ground, but there's the problem of the air uh, attacks. Uh, Russia has more than 10 times as many planes and rockets uh, as Ukraine does. And uh, this cynical attack is just really crushing the population. Mm. Archbishop Shevyuk uh, of, uh, of Kiev has been posting daily video messages online via his secretariat in Rome to the people of Ukraine. Uh, in his messages, he thanked the Holy Father, the bishops, and various countries for their prayers. He's also made it clear that if people are forced to stay in their homes and shelters, quote, our priests will descend to the underground. They will descend to the bomb shelters, and there they'll celebrate the divine liturgy. The church is with its people. The Church of Christ brings the Eucharistic Savior to those who are experiencing critical moments in their life who need the strength and hope of the resurrection, end quote. The archbishop has taken shelter himself in the, uh, in, beneath the Cathedral of the Resurrection in Kiev. How long can the clergy continue to remain in place, Your Grace? 
uh, particularly as Russian troops advance on the city? You know, the catacomb existence of the Ukrainian Catholic Church is a living memory. Uh, from 1946 mm -hmm. to 1989, our church was illegal, completely illegal, and it was in the catacombs. So you can, you can carry the faith through a tunnel of persecution uh, as long as the Lord is guiding you. And uh, there should be no doubt that the faith will be preserved. And I think the world is seeing how the whole country is not buckling down. Uh, mm -hmm. The sad story is that for in the last 250 years, every time a part of Ukraine has been occupied by a Russian regime, whether it's Tsarist, Communist, or Putinist, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is strangled. It can take a year yeah. or two, it can take 20 years, but it's never killed because it's the, it's the body of Christ and it rises again. And that is, that is the spirit with which... Um, his beatitude is speaking to his faithful, to all of us. Uh, Putin has long had global political ambitions uh, for a very long time, and he's threatened to take back Ukraine repeatedly. At the same time, he's elevated the Russian Orthodox Church to the center of Russian identity, lost under the Soviet Union. He claims, Putin does, that he's trying to reunite the fatherland. And the Moscow Patriarch has echoed this notion. Are they looking to bring the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Russian Patriarchy? Or is this simply uh, uh, an empty justification for political aggression? No, no. They want, they want uh, you know, there's, there's symphony. It's actually the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, who came up with this ideological construct called the Russian world. Anywhere there was a Russian empire, a footprint, we want it back. Uh, and that's an ecclesi ecclesiastical view that Putin has been using, that term, Russian world. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. the idea of empire and the pretense for colonizing is something that is shared uh, broadly in Russian society. I mean, Putin does have pretty broad support. And there, unfortunately, is great symphony between the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church and President Putin. Hmm. Tell me about this religious backdrop and the motivations at play here from the Russian perspective. I mean, they see this, and it, 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 it was a bit astounding that Putin has even given voice to this, that he's defending the Russian Orthodox Church with this incursion into Ukraine. Well, uh, even... The Orthodox Church in Ukraine that is under the Moscow Patriarchate has condemned this invasion because mm -hmm. this invasion right now is concentrated on, on the central and eastern part of the country. That's where a majority of the parishes in the jurisdiction of the Moscow Patriarchate are found. Also, the Russian-speaking uh, citizens of Ukraine live there. So the people that are being killed are predominantly Russian-speaking and predominantly members of the Russian Orthodox Church. And they are the ones who are standing up and defending these cities. Mm. Wow. Again, we're not getting any of that in the reportage we're seeing, so I thank you, Your Grace, for sharing that with us. Uh, during his sermon this past Sunday, 
Moscow Patriarch Kirill, uh, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, said of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, quote, God forbid that the present political situation in fraternal Ukraine, so close to us, should be aimed at making the evil forces that have always strived against the unity of Russia and the Russian Church gain the upper hand. May the Lord preserve the Russian land, the land which now includes Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and other tribes and peoples, end quote. Your thoughts on that statement, Your Grace? Some say Kirill is acting more like a politician than a churchman here. Well, it's scandalous stuff. It's, it's, it's the talk of empire and colony. When most churches uh, today are reexamining and repenting about their role in colonizing, in subjecting, in enslaving, we hear the Russian patriarch at a time of war supporting, standing by this aggression, this uh, indiscriminate bombing of uh, civilian buildings. I mean, it, it just doesn't—it's unthinkable. Well, in response to Kirill's comments, and you alluded to this a, a moment ago, the Orthodox Metropolitan Archbishop of Sumy in eastern Ukraine on Monday instructed his priest to discontinue prayers of communion with Kirill in the Divine Liturgy. And he's not alone. The Metropolitan Bishop of Lviv in, uh, in western Ukraine also directed his priests to strike mention of the Moscow Patriarch from the liturgy. Now, both of these dioceses are part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate. That's true. Uh, uh, you know, so now, now a few others are aligned with Bartholomew in Constantinople, which the Russian Patriarch considered an act of war. Are you surprised by the response of these bishops, the ones that are under the Moscow Patriarchate, taking a stand against Patriarch Kirill and his statements? I, you know, lived in Lviv for 20 years, uh, working in a Catholic university, and I know Metropolitan Filaret. He's been a guest at my house. I visit him when I go to Lviv. He's a relatively young man, and I think he stands before the icons and asks the Lord, what is your will? He used to be uh, the secretary, the private man uh, that was next to uh, the patriarch in Moscow. And then he became bishop. Wow. Uh, he didn't know Ukrainian when he came uh, to Lviv. He's learned it. He loves his people. He wants to serve. And he is, you know, gaining the courage to speak the truth, to speak, some, to speak hmm. in a gospel-like way. Yeah, this is heroic. I mean, this is really when, when your faith is tested and tried and, uh, and challenged. And I guess that's when, well, when those moments occur. He's in western best, Ukraine. There's no, you know, there's no shelling there. And, you know, he is mm -hmm. taking a stand. But the heroic position is by, you know, particularly heroic in Sumit. But the real hero yep. heroes are, uh, you know, the, the soldiers, uh, the 150,000. Uh, the 150,000 that have just joined up in the last uh, seven days uh, into the territorial defense units that defend each city. These are former veterans. There's 400,000 veterans of the war that has been waged for, for eight years. And now wow. about 100,000 emigres uh, have come back into Ukraine and are joining this defense. 
Um, the Ukrainians have won the battle on the ground, but the problem are the rockets. And um, yeah. if, if there is no control of the airspace, you will see that uh, what has begun will be a process through which President Putin might reduce one or two cities to rubble. That's mm. not going to stop the defense. That's not going to stop the resilience of the people. The bishops are there. The president is there. The people are there. The Russian-speaking, Ukrainian-speaking, Muslims, Jews, you know, Babin Yar, uh, the place of the massacre of Jews by the Nazis that was hit mm -hmm. by rocket fire, and five people that were in that area were killed. Uh, people are, are not going to give up. It's freedom or death. It's you know, the beginning of Lent, and people realize that the pilgrimage of cleansing to resurrection passes through the cross, and there is a crucifixion, and Ukraine is being crucified. It's a biblical story. You have David and Goliath, and that, I think, has captured the truth of that, has captured the attention of the world, and we've seen that the prayers are working. Your Grace, uh, the Moscow Patriarch on Tuesday said that the decision by those bishops that are under, again, under his patriarchate, their decision to remove his name from the divine liturgy amounts to schism. He said the termination of the commemoration of the primate of the church, not because of doctrinal or canonical errors or delusions, but because of inconsistency with certain political views and preferences, is a schism for which anyone who commits it will answer before God, not only in the age to come, but also in the present. Do you see this decision as amounting to schism? And what do you see happening in the Orthodox Church in Ukraine? You know, I think there's a, 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 an examination of conscience, a, a, a view of reality. Bishops are seeing their people killed. Bishops are seeing their parishioners being hit as they, a, you know, in their apartment buildings. Bishops see children who, who are hit by mm. shrapnel, and they see the head of their church defending the policy and action of, of a president that the whole world is condemning. And they're saying mm. the leader of our church is simply wrong. I think they will no. be justified here and, and, and in heaven. And um, mm. poor Patriarch Kirill, is uh, digging a deep hole for himself morally. Mm, yeah. It's very interesting. Again, when you probe down, religion, I always say, this sits in the heart of men. And, and when you can see what's happening there, it often uh, indicates what's going to happen in the external world, in the temporal world, before long. So it, 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 there's an interesting shift happening that is not getting much reported. On Wednesday, you and the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States met with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at the Ukrainian Catholic National Shrine of the Holy Family in Washington, D.C. Uh, Blinken had this to say about Ukraine's future. We have tremendous faith in Ukraine's future and the uh, peace and prosperity of its, of its people. And I think that um, President Putin has made a horrific, terrible mistake in committing this aggression. 
Your Grace, what, in your estimation, came of that meeting? And is the State Department aware of the religious backdrop of this conflict, at least in the mind of Putin and, and the Moscow patriarch? Well, that's one point, of course, that we uh, made very clear. There was an Orthodox Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Daniel, there, and we were meeting in, in our national shrine here in Washington. Uh, we mm -hmm. said that uh, the occupation, Russian occupation, will bring uh, uh, a tightening of religious freedom and actually the persecution or elimination of some communities. Uh, that was one of the three points that I was making. Uh, the first point I was asking for uh, the State Department and uh, the U.S. to encourage European countries to respond positively to President Zelensky's uh, request that Ukraine become a member of the EU. Uh, that would be a very important symbolic act supporting uh, the population of Ukraine. And you've seen those columns, and this was my third uh, point. You've seen those that column of 40 miles of Russian uh, yep. armaments coming in. I asked uh, Secretary Blinken that there be today, immediately, urgently, four such columns of 40 miles coming in from Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania into Ukraine for the defense and the humanitarian aid of the country. Uh, America can do it. Europe can do it. We have a new unity trans, uh, that's transatlantic. We have a new unity in Europe. It's a unity around principles, around justice, around democracy. All of these things flow out of the gospel, out of the Christian tradition of Europe and of our country as well. Uh, we're remembering things. We're uh, realizing that we took many things for granted. And the Ukrainian population is showing us that they are willing to pay a price for what is most important. Everybody mm -hmm. sees who is true, who is just, who is being persecuted. Mm. Uh, I want to move on to the Holy Father's uh, Sunday Angelus. Pope Francis lamented the war in Ukraine saying, quote, those who wage war forget humanity. They rely on the diabolic and perverse logic of weapons, which is the most distant from the will of God, and they distance themselves from the common people who want peace. The Pope did not make mention of the invasion of Ukraine or call out Russia as an aggressor. Did that surprise you? Do you have any doubt about what the Holy Father was speaking? I think nobody does. It's clear that mm -hmm. it, it's Russia and the Russian invasion. The Holy Father made an unprecedented gesture. He went uh, to the Russian embassy as a sign of protest, lodging his protests against this horrific war. Uh, he's mm -hmm. called the world to prayer. Uh, Ash Wednesday was a global world, uh, global uh, prayer for, for peace in Ukraine. I was hosted here graciously by Cardinal Wilton Gregory the day before, Cardinal Tim Dolan, uh, really at, at the ordination of two bishops, uh, asked everybody to pray. Uh, there was a standing ovation. The Holy Father, cardinals, bishops, they're gathering the Catholic faithful around this, this this great drama, this great tragedy. And I want to thank everybody 
all Catholics and all people of goodwill for your prayers and for your willingness to help. Ask the yeah. United States to do everything in its power to stop this, um, this horrific invasion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you're right. The Holy Father, in an unprecedented uh, action, went to the Russian uh, embassy at the Holy See on February 25th. He did so not as a diplomatic intervention, but he said as a priest. Why do you suppose it was not a formal diplomatic intervention? You know, I think uh, what uh, we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, get, we can get lost in details. The, uh, the world saw the Pope going there, and the Pope, you know, as Francis, as uh, Bergoglio, uh, said, this is wrong. Stop mm -hmm. it. This is against the gospel. You will have to respond, answer about this at the last judgment. Yeah. He called it diabolical. How, yeah, how more strong can the language of a priest be? Mm. The, the pope has put a priority on ecumenical relations with the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, and as you know, he is the head of the Catholic Church. Uh, there are almost five million Catholics, Latin Rite and Greek Rite, in Ukraine. Uh, what would be your advice to him? Should he send a, 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 a direct message to the Patriarchate in Moscow? Should he challenge what's coming out of the Patriarchate in Moscow? I wouldn't be surprised if he already has. I spoke with the Holy Father uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, briefly, in Rome about, about this issue. Uh, it, it was more about communication with President Putin. Uh, the uh, the Holy See, you know, has soft power, uh, mm -hmm. particularly the capacity to in inspire people to pray. We should not mm -hmm. underestimate the power of prayer. Uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church for 43 years was the biggest illegal church in the world, and it became free, and 15 countries became free when the Soviet Union fell apart without a war. It was a miracle. Mm. It was a sacrifice of martyrs. And so the Pope's job is to help people pray, to help people understand what are the fundamental moral gospel principles. I, I, yeah. I think his, his gestures, his posture is speaking, you know, a thousand words to, mm. to the Russian Orthodox Church, to the Russian people, to the world. Whether we hear it, whether they hear it, that's an, another question. Yeah. Your, your Grace, I, I am in full agreement with you. I mean, watching and having covered some of John Paul II's um, international voyages, and as you said, the Pope showing the people how to pray and directing that prayer, uh, in the case of his native Poland and then the domino effect that had throughout Eastern Europe and the, the former Soviet bloc was nothing short of miraculous. This past Wednesday, Ukraine's Latin Rite Catholic bishops asked Pope Francis to consecrate Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. In a letter to the Pope, the Ukrainian bishops wrote, in these hours of immeasurable pain and terrible ordeal for our people, in response to many requests of concern, Responding to this prayer, we humbly ask Your Holiness to publicly perform the act of consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary of Ukraine and Russia as requested 
by the Blessed Virgin in Fatima. What do you make of that request, its timing, and should the Pope grant it? You know, it's a, it's a form of prayer. It's, it's a gesture that uh, Prince uh, Yaroslav the Wise did in 1037 for the first time. The Prince of Kiev consecrated his land uh, to the Mother of God. More recently, uh, the living martyr, uh, Patriarch Joseph Sidipi, in 1970 in Lourdes, uh, when the church was completely illegal in Ukraine, consecrated uh, Ukraine to the Mother of God. His successor uh, repeated it twice, before the fall of the Soviet Union in 1995. Uh, and the present head of the church, Svetoslav, did it at the beginning of this war in 1214 and in 2020, in July, as the uh, war damage was being combined with the COVID damage. So this is something mm. that um, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic uh, Church has been doing with regularity. And we consecrate ourselves to the Mother of God. We consecrate ourselves to Christ. Uh, mm. And I think there is, there's a, a veritable spiritual revival that, that this crucifixion is bringing about. So you would encourage the Pope to consecrate Russia and Ukraine? Yes, to the Blessed we 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 incur. Yes, this is this is one of many gestures that needs okay. needs to be need. There's many things, many ways in which we can pray, and this is a good way to pray. Okay, you've urged people to pray for Ukraine, and this past Sunday at a gathering on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, you asked for a donation of 10,000 helmets, bulletproof vests. How else can people in the U.S. help those in need in Ukraine, and particularly the church there? Well, uh, uh, different different Catholic agencies are are making collections for the humanitarian problems. Uh, they're going to be almost unlimited. Uh, there's a million people out already, uh, probably a million on their way. Uh, cities, schools uh, are being destroyed, hospitals, there's a lack of medicine. Uh, the basic Catholic agencies that you can reach through your diocese or through websites, uh, Catholic charities, uh, aid to the church in need, our Archeparchy of Philadelphia has, has on its website a, a, a manner to donate. Um, it's difficult to, you know, carry coats and boots uh, from, from the U.S. Uh, logistically. So the best way is to do donate finances if people want to give something. Mm -hmm. Archbishop Boris Gutiak, I am uh, so moved by your words, your eloquence. Um, which is such a rare thing today, and your, your clarity and conviction. Bless you. Bless the people of Ukraine. I thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for bringing this story, and uh, keep on it. Um, we shall. Well, I hope you'll come back. Thank you. While Russia continues its attacks on Ukraine, what role is China playing? And could the distraction enable China to move against Taiwan? Joining me to discuss is president of the Population Research Institute, author of The Bully of Asia, Stephen Mosier. Steve, uh, I want to begin with the Russian incursion into Ukraine. There are conflicting reports on the Ukrainian civilian death toll. 
but estimates say it could be near 2,000. Russia has acknowledged that nearly 500 of her troops have been killed in the fighting so far. Ukraine's estimated Russian troop losses at 9,000. Meanwhile, most of Ukraine's major cities are under assault. I want to ask you, what do you make of the timing of this Russian invasion? In a recent report in The Guardian, which uh, China's denying, incidentally, uh, China's said to have asked Russia not to invade Ukraine during its Winter Olympics. Is China directing Russia's invasion in some way? Well, they're certainly coordinating their plans. I mean, Putin flew to Beijing just as the Winter Olympics uh, was beginning, and he signed 15 agreements. That's one five agreements <laughs> with, uh, with Russia, uh, including oil and natural gas, because he wanted to have another buyer for his oil and natural gas if, uh, if the Europeans decided, and, and, and the Biden administration decided not to buy uh, Russian oil anymore. He also, just as Putin's panzers rolled across the uh, plains into Ukraine, uh, they also agreed to, to buy Russian wheat, again, another market for Russian commodities that may not be uh, uh, very desirable on the open world market if they're sanctioned. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of coordination. And you mentioned uh, the only demand that, uh, that Putin's Chinese partners had was, please don't start your spectacle in Ukraine until we've completed our own Winter Olympics spectacle. Mm. And so he did. He waited until after the Winter Olympics was over uh, before invading Ukraine. So there's been a lot of coordination. There's a lot of uh, secret support. And in fact, not so secret support. If you go on Chinese social media, Chinese social media yeah. is just ablaze with praise of Putin as a strong man, with criticism of Ukraine and the United States and the world for not supporting Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Of course, they don't call it, the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, doesn't call it an invasion. Uh, and he calls for negotiations. But uh, I think what he really means is a unilateral surrender by Ukraine to Russian forces, which I don't think is going to happen. No. And, uh, you, you know, people don't realize Putin and Xi in China, they've met three dozen times one-on-one. -on -one. This is not a, a uh, you know, uh, a fly-by-night like Biden going into the edge of the NATO meetings. Th th this is a close alliance that I believe the United States has helped push even closer. Uh, Steve, I'll get back to all of that in a moment. I want to talk about NATO expansion and the possibility of Ukraine joining the alliance. Was that the chief reason that Putin decided to invade now? What's the end game here? Well, it's very curious. You know, apparently uh, we gave uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, the impression that if he wanted to join NATO, it was up to him. And, of course, that's a red line for Putin, uh, because Putin has said that, you know, he will never allow Ukraine to join NATO. Now, that's not Putin's call. He is a bloodthirsty killer, as we all know. He's a war mm -hmm. criminal who ought to be tried. And, uh, you know, the same way that the, uh, the, the Nazi officials were tried at the Nuremberg tribunals after, after World War II. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, there, 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 there are wheels within wheels going on here. And make no mistake that, that, that Xi Jinping hopes to see the United States, which is China's chief rival in the Indo-Pacific, bogged down in a proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, so, right. so there's a lot. Everybody is, is, you know, advancing their own interest here. Uh, I want to I want to get into the reportage 
and what we're seeing in the American media. Some are calling this Ukrainian resistance their 1776 moment. I, I've even seen others calling President Zelensky of Ukraine a new Churchill. But when I look at the map of this Russian advance, and we'll put it up for you, it's clear that Putin has the country surrounded, and he intends to cut off Ukrainian troops and supply lines. And you see his forces in the north and south meeting up, which is his intention. Is the media building up a simplistic false hope, given the reality on the ground and the support and the might that Putin has and is advancing here? Yeah, um, you know, we, we'll have to see how this all plays out. But can I just say here that uh, that, that this should never have happened had we continued uh, the previous administration's policy of supplying arms to Ukraine mm. and, and not buying uh, Russian oil, uh, not uh, allowing the Europeans, as insofar as we could, not to de become dependent on natural gas from Russia. Uh, this would never have happened. We fattened Putin's coffers to the tune of $650 billion. And now, belatedly, we may take some of that away from him. Belatedly, we are sending arms to Ukrainians to defend themselves, and we should. But I don't want uh, to see any American boots on the ground in Ukraine uh, imposing a no-fly zone, as some reckless people are suggesting, right. would put American combat pilots directly into conflict with Russian pilots. It would result in Russians' death. It would be an act of war. So I think we need and to American pause deaths. Here. Yes, we need to pause here. We need to think about what's going to happen long term. And I'm I'm quite happy to send humanitarian aid and and defensive arms to the Ukrainians as long as they're willing to fight. And you know the thing is, uh, seeing the Ukrainians defend their cities must also give Xi Jinping pause because he's sitting waiting on the other side of the Taiwan Straits to see how things turn out in Ukraine, and if the citizens of yeah. Taiwan fight like Ukrainians. Uh, and three-quarters say they would take up arms to defend their country against a Chinese invasion, uh, then the takeover of the island might cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, not that that matters very much to communist dictators. It doesn't matter no. to Putin. You mentioned casualties. Uh, I, I don't know if 9,000 Russian soldiers have died, but I do know that one particular Russian battalion, uh, 550 men, only 18 came back. So I know there have been serious losses five, six, seven yeah. thousand losses of Russian troops so far. I know there Steve, has been shelling. Yeah. You, you raised an important point that I don't want to lose sight of. How did Biden, lifting the sanctions on the Nord 2 pipeline uh, and the shutting down of oil production in the United States, facilitate this invasion of Ukraine? Well, absolutely facilitated the invasion of Ukraine, because uh, he was saying basically to the Germans who want access to Russian natural gas, and you can continue uh, to support Vladimir Putin. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, funds his army, pays his troops, builds his weapons using money that he gets from selling commodities like wheat and natural gas and oil to the rest of the world. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we're supporting uh, Germany in NATO. On the other hand, Germany has become dependent upon Russia for natural gas. Now, here's what we've seen in Germany, Raymond. This is very interesting. Uh, the German chancellor, the new chancellor, the replacement for Angela Merkel, who's finally gone off into that good night, 
is to is to say this is a turning point, a Wendepunkt in German, a turning point because we will now start up our nuclear reactors again. Uh, we will stop the Nord Stream pipeline. We will look for other support sources of oil and natural gas. So they have basically made a 180. Uh, Viktor Orban this morning also made a 180, said that uh, we're going to start supplying uh, humanitarian aid and uh, and defensive weapons to uh, the Ukrainians. And and it's interesting because some of the Russian oligarchs as well are starting to turn on Putin. And this is his base of support. Yeah. There is resistance in the country, in Russia. But, uh, you know, Steve, uh, as I listen to you talk about the sanctions that Biden lifted on the on the Nord II and uh, cutting off American production of oil here at home, making us more dependent on Russia, whom we still, up to this moment, are purchasing energy from. We have to remember, back in 2014, it was Biden and Obama who allowed Putin to invade Ukraine, and the world did nothing. Nothing. That was really the invasion of Ukraine. This is the continuation of that invasion. And now, eight, to eight years later, everybody's wearing pins and their little Ukraine flags. I think it's too little too late. But, uh, Steve, an estimated two million refugees, many of them children, you've seen those heartbreaking yeah. scenes out of Ukraine. They fled the country yeah. in this first week of invasion, prompting talk of a humanitarian catastrophe. There is a discussion of an international criminal court investigation of Russia for war crimes. Is that warranted now? Well, it is, but, but it won't take place uh, until this conflict is resolved one way or the other. And, and you're right about back in, in 2014, uh, the new Peter the Great, uh, and, and uh, make no mistake that Vladimir Putin imagines himself as the person who is going to reassert uh, and reestablish the Russian Empire bit by bloody bit. Back in 2014, he took part of Moldova, he took the Crimea, uh, he took parts of eastern Ukraine. So this uh, death by inches in Ukraine has been occurring for many years. And most of it up until now, well, all of it has occurred under uh, an administration that Biden was involved in. Uh, so uh, again, this was an entirely preventable conflict. But think about this. On the one hand, uh, we're still buying Russian oil because we shut down our own oil production after being uh, energy independent for several years under the Trump administration. So we're giving money to Russia for its oil at the same time that we're providing aid to Ukrainian uh, forces to fight a Russian invasion. Uh, isn't that a little bit contradictory? Uh, shouldn't we be cutting totally. off uh, the oil that we're buying from Russia? Shouldn't we be restarting? Uh, the Keystone Pipeline? Shouldn't we be allowing drilling on federal lands to increase energy production? Uh, we can do that. Uh, we can become, again, the largest energy producer in the world. And and we must if we want to end, you know, end this conflict. Well, you know, Steve, I read a in very interesting piece today, and it was about how Russia has been funding a lot of the climate activism in Europe and in the United States so that to, to put pressure on public officials to outlaw fracking, to reduce uh, gas and, and uh, oil exploration, so that he could have the market to himself. He's rather brilliant in that sense, uh, never mind that he's a horrible, murderous dictator. But starting last weekend, with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Washington and a lot of the media magpies have been describing Putin as delusional, crazy. Now, as I said a moment ago, there's no doubt he's a killer, he's a thug, 
He's as far away from Christianity, no matter what he says, as he could be. But mm -hmm. has he slipped into madness, or is this just the dictator executing his playbook? Well, I think it's clear that for the last 20 years, he's dreamed of reestablishing uh, the Russian Empire. He's dreamed that he's a reincarnation, not that I believe in reincarnation, of Peter the Great. Uh, and he has set about doing that. Remember uh, the invasion of Georgia. Uh, remember the, the, uh, the, the brutal put-down of the Chechnyan uh, revolution. Uh, he has been moving, encroaching for years and years, moving in the same direction. So this should really be no surprise. The surprise to me is really how poorly the Russian army has performed. Uh, how yeah. Russia was not able, despite an overwhelming superiority in terms of uh, numbers of Air Force planes, has been unable to take control of the skies. I think they have serious, serious problems with the maintenance of their equipment. Uh, they're using 80s and 90s technology, and the tanks are breaking down, the armored personnel carriers are breaking down, and the troops are young conscripts, and I feel badly for everybody in this conflict. Uh, yeah. The young 19- and 20-year-old conscripts from, uh, from Russia who were told they were going to a training exercise and are now dying in Ukraine, uh, not really knowing how they got there or what they were supposed to be doing there. And, of course, the Ukrainians uh, who are dying every day because of Russian shelling Terrible. and bombardment. Uh, it's it's yeah. uh, war, yeah. war is uh, hell, as we say. Yeah, well, uh, Zelensky, the, the pre Ukrainian president, said the, these are like Russian children that were sent in, you know, to do—they're yeah. they're not warriors, they're children. Uh, Steve, I, I was struck by the hero's welcome Putin received at the Beijing Olympic Games, and it made me laugh that Nike and some of these film companies have now cut off product to Russia this week while tripping over themselves to sell to this horrible Chinese regime that routinely destroys human rights, human life, religious rights. It's disgusting. But following the games, Xi said his friendship with Putin and Russia had no limits. What's the play here? Uh, the play here is for China. Uh, China, uh, there's an ancient Chinese stratagem called sitting on the mountaintop and watching the tigers fight. I'm sure that Xi mm. Jinping encouraged Vladimir Putin to go into Ukraine so that he could embroil uh, the United States in a proxy war in Europe and give him a free hand over time so that he could dominate the Asian Pacific. Uh, that's mm. what she is thinking here. Uh, and we say it in, a, in we, you know, the Chinese have, have very elegant sayings, sitting on the mountaintop, watching the tigers fight. As we say uh, more bluntly, let's you and him fight. And it's in, in Xi's view, you and him are now starting to fight. And he's hoping that this will give him a free hand vis-a-vis uh, -vis the South China Sea, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and uh, right. allow him to right. take aggressive actions in that theater. While we're distracted, and, and Washington, make no mistake, everybody in Washington is now focused on Ukraine. They're all wearing their right. Ukrainian flag pens. Everyone seems to have forgotten about the country that unleashed a virus on the world two years ago and killed five or six million people. That's the long-term mm -hmm. threat. That's mm -hmm. the more serious threat than Russia uh, over time. 
and we can't take our eye off the ball. Well, and we're all fixated on this invasion of uh, Ukraine eight years after the fact, while the southern border of the United States, millions of people are streaming in. And look, it's not the families from Central America that you necessarily have to worry about, but we know, and I know from being down there, they've identified Middle Eastern folks, folks from the Far East, uh, coming across that border. And their intentions are not pure. And they're not just coming to do jobs Americans don't want. And we've taken our eye off of watching our own borders while we worry about Ukraine's. It does—it it is a little mind-boggling. Um, Russia reclaiming this land, though, Stephen, I want to get back to this. You touched on it. Russia's justification is Putin's uh, notion expressed is, we are reclaiming land that is our own. This sounds remarkably like— China's attitude toward Taiwan. Is this a test run for the eventual Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Does it set an international precedent? Yeah, a absolutely. Now, the only thing that I think really upset Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party about Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine was that before he did it, he recognized the two breakaway provinces in eastern Ukraine as separate nations. And, and the Chinese Communist Party leader said, wait a minute, you can't do that. You have to respect the territorial integrity of the sovereignty of nations, meaning that China claims Taiwan and the world should respect the fact that uh, Taiwan uh, regards Taiwan, Taiwan is a breakaway province of China and that uh, China mm -hmm. should be free to take it back at any point in time. Uh, of course, Taiwan has never been under the control of the People's Republic of China. Taiwan has been separated from China since 1895. The People's Republic of China was established in 1949. And so Taiwan has never been a part of the People's Republic of China. And my position with regard to Taiwan is the same as my position with regard to Ukraine. The Taiwanese people, three quarters of them, 77% in the last poll, said they would take up arms to defend their country against an amphibious invasion from mainland China. I say uh, that we arm them with defensive arms, with anti-ship missiles, and create a kind of porcupine out of the island so that anybody who tries to encroach on it walks away with a, a handful of quills um, and mm. loses their invading fleet uh, in the depths of the Taiwan Straits. Uh, the Taiwanese are perfectly willing and capable to defend their own freedom and uh, defend their own democracy if they're given the tools to do it. And we need to help that happen as soon yeah. as possible. Not wait, not wait until an invasion is already underway and then belatedly say, uh, we're going to send you aid. Uh, by then, yeah. uh, it will be too late. Or we're going to slap sanctions on China while American business continues to do, you know, to trade and, and partner with them. Um, I want to talk about Taiwan and its vulnerability. Just this week, there was a massive power outage reported as uh, a result of an accident at a power plant. Could have been a hack, leaving five million households dark. Taiwan is home to one of the world's largest chip makers for semiconductors, Steve. How big a blow would it be to the West? Would China launch? an invasion of Taiwan, or should it? Well, you, you make a very important point, because we have a greater strategic interest in Taiwan uh, because of that chip manufacturing uh, technology, mm -hmm. uh, because of that, uh, because of the other things that Taiwan makes uh, in, its, in, its, uh, in its industries that we rely upon. And if you don't have chips, you cannot make any electronic device, cars, phones, everything. 
uh, production lines will stop without those chips. And 94% of the world's chips are made in Taiwan factories. The other 6% are made wow. in South Korea. So, so we're yeah, well, terribly Joe, dependent on, on the, the pre President Biden in his State of the Union said, fear not, Intel's opening uh, a big uh, semiconductor uh, uh, chip manufacturer in Columbus, Ohio. How long will that take, Steve? Uh, that'll take about three years to get up and running. And so in the meantime, uh, if the chips stop, stop coming from Taiwan, then we won't be able to make any uh, electronic devices. And make no mistake, there are lots of chips embedded in our uh, fighting machines these days and tanks and planes and, and other things. Uh, so, so without chips, uh, you know, modern, modern uh, warfighting capabilities grind to a halt. Now, China wow. would very much like to get their hand on that facility because they themselves, uh, despite pouring billions of dollars into uh, Huawei and, and other uh, high-tech enterprises in China, which are called nat national champions, uh, they really have not been able to produce uh, the kind of modern chips that power, say, iPhones and MacBooks and computers. So they'd mm -hmm. like to get their hands on that chip manufacturing capability in Taiwan. They would also like to have access to the open ocean, which Taiwan mm -hmm. gives them. You see, right now, they're sort of trapped in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, because you've got Korea, Japan on the north, the Taiwan, the Philippines, kind of bracketing. The first island chain brackets uh, China's access to the open ocean. If they got Taiwan, they would have access to deep water ports. Mm. And the next thing between China and, and uh, the west coast of the United States would be Hawaii. So it would be Taiwan mm. is a key strategic place for the United States in a way that Ukraine, as much as I have sympathy for the Ukrainian people, Ukraine is not. Ukraine doesn't provide any any vital uh, resource for us. Uh, they don't sit in the way of uh, uh, in the in the middle of a uh, vital access to the open ocean. Yeah. Well, Congress and the president better get on the stick about Taiwan. I agree with you. And and to imagine that these major electronic companies have not figured out to produce the, uh, the essential semiconductor chips here in the United States is mind-boggling, Steve. I mean, it would be like McDonald's, you know, having all the cows in Europe or something. It, it, none of it makes sense. Steve, before I let you go, why do Russia and China still enjoy most favored nation trade status, which they do as of this moment? And why is the U.S. still buying gas and oil from Russia? Well, we should we should cut off uh, the supply of gas and oil from Russia immediately. But if we did, if we did, gas at the pump would go up to eight or nine dollars a gallon, uh, because right now, because we've compromised our own energy supply, uh, we have to buy energy. We have to import oil from from other mm -hmm. countries. Now, look, if you're worried about global warming, and 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 and, I, and I'm not. I'm not worried about a one-degree rise in global temperature over the next century, quite frankly. I'm worried about uh, the price of gas at the pump for ordinary Americans uh, over the course of the next weeks and months. And we've allowed ourselves to become dependent upon Russian oil at the same time we're trying to stop Russian aggression in Ukraine. Uh, the whole th This thing makes no sense. If, if Biden thinks clearly about this matter, he's going to restart the Keystone Pipeline. He's going to allow the drilling of uh, new wells on American soil and allow us to become 
energy independent again. Stephen Mosher, we will leave it there. Thank you for being here. Bully of Asia by Stephen Mosher is available at bookstores everywhere and online. And you can follow Steve on Twitter at Stephen W. Mosher. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about a special event that I'll be speaking at in April. The Cincinnati Men's Conference takes place on Saturday, April 2nd in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you're in the area, you really should come. I'll be one of the headline speakers, joined by actor Jim Caviezel, coach Luke Fickle, and some special guest stars. This conference is for men of all ages, regardless of your faith. It's intended to inspire men to deepen their spiritual lives and be the leaders they're called to be, and I promise you it'll be a great time. For tickets and more information, go to the CincinnatiMensConference.com. Our Father, who art in heaven, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. The man has a following. He's a rogue who answers to no one. You asked me before if I knew his name. Now everyone knows his name, and I fear for his safety. Throw this down for a catch. Do you think that impossible things can happen? That overturn the laws of nature. That was from season one of The Chosen, the highly acclaimed series about the life of Christ. It became a global success with over 300 million viewers, thanks in large part to its crowdfunding efforts. Joining me now to discuss the success of crowdfunding as a business model is CEO of Angel Studios, the company responsible for producing The Chosen, and much more, Neil Harmon. Neil, thanks for being here. Why did you start Angel Studio, and how exactly does this business model of a community-driven movie studio work? That's a great question. So Angel Studios was started by four brothers and a cousin, and we all had young children, and we were feeling the need for great storytelling in our homes that uh, matches our values. And we, we learned that there were a lot of other people who felt the same as we did. And so we started this company with that purpose. But in the distribution business, there's a, there's a chicken and an egg problem. Right. In order to make a show that people love, you've got to have quite a bit of money and to do it well. And then in order to get enough investment to do it well, you've got to have distribution to justify the investment. And that's a chicken and an egg problem, but it was solved through Angel's crowdfunding model and 19,000 people invested to make season one of The Chosen. Hmm. Now, how does Angel Studios know what people are looking for, Neil? Well, the audience, we believe, are better at making decisions than a few elite executives in Hollywood. So what we do is when a creator wants to make a show with Angel Studios, they bring mm -hmm. what we call a torch. It's a pilot or short film, and they show it to the audience. And then the audience hmm. says whether or not that gets greenlit. Hmm. And now, now what happens if a project doesn't get the funding it needs? Do the people who've already invested get their money back? Is that how this works? Correct. So there's there's two stages. One is first there's a review in order to determine that the show is well made and that it amplifies light. And then the second stage is the crowdfunding and the creator needs to say what budget they need in order to make a high quality show. So let's say it's 10 million dollars. 
if they don't reach the $10 million number during the crowdfunding, then all the money gets sent back to the investors and we know that the show shouldn't be greenlit. Since The Chosen, uh, you've uh, moved forward to other shows. I mean, you funded other shows, uh, The Tuttle Twins, uh, The Wing Feather Saga. These are both children properties based on books, a book series. Uh, Dry Bar, a comedy series of stand-up comedians and more. Now, Angel Studios has secured almost $50 million in funding. Are you surprised by the demand for this kind of programming? Absolutely not, because this is the reason we started the company. We didn't feel like that the Hollywood bubble was actually making the stuff that the rest of the world wanted to watch. They do a good job of making shows, but they don't do a great job of reflecting some of the values that the rest of us really hold on to. And so we're not surprised by the demand. We're very excited. I'll tell you what we are surprised about is that a lot of the shows that we're doing are creators who are coming from Hollywood who have been through that system and they want out. They want to come and make something that matters to them rather than being part of the Hollywood machine. Hmm. Why have you been able to succeed in, in a way that these studios, I mean, it's really this kind of success has eluded some of the studios, particularly when it comes to a family or a faith-based audience? I think one of the keys is ownership. Angel means ownership. It refers to all the angel investors who back these shows. There's a street by my house that uh, 15 years ago had dry lawns, dilapidated shutters, because all the houses were rentals. Small families started moving into the street and buying those homes. And today, you go down that street and it's a beautiful street, clean cut lawns, washed cars, flowers placed in careful areas. Well, that's what's happening at Angel, is the artist and the audience, they both own the show. They own the outcome of the show. Mm. And if we succeed, we all succeed together. And if we fail, we all fail together. And that's the Angel model. And it, we believe we, it will um, outperform Hollywood's model, which gets about a 20% success rate in the box office. We believe that we'll invert that number and we'll be succeeding after the crowd has validated these projects, we'll be succeeding 80% of the time so far. Hmm. Neil Harmon, it's a, it's a fascinating model. Uh, incredible what you've done with Chosen. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Before we go tonight, I really dove into my pre-Lenten preparations this year. I had the privilege of serving as the Grand Marshal of the Crew of Endymion Parade in New Orleans last weekend. And it was an incredible Mardi Gras experience. Now, contrary to the caricature, and I've gotten, I've seen your tweets and I know what you think, but you've never been to Mardi Gras here in New Orleans. This is a family celebration for us, a moment of joy and unity and a time when we revive our traditions and pass them on to the next generation. Endymion is the largest crew of Mardi Gras and the largest parade. I was joined on the float by my friend and longtime producer, Christopher Edwards, and the crowds were simply incredible. This is why New Orleans is so incredible during Mardi Gras. There's really nothing like it. Then the entire parade pulled into the Superdome, where 25,000 people, including my family, were gathered. The crew of Endymion were so welcoming, and in this time of division and acrimony, 
it was a reminder of what unity in diversity looks like. I tried to sum it up in my final Grand Marshal address to the extravaganza crowd at the Superdome. When I look out at you all tonight, this is really about family. We are a huge family. I have my friends over here, my family, Rebecca, and the kids. And to have everybody here reminds us that we're not going to be here forever, and we have to savor every joyous, wonderful moment. So do that tonight. Family endures. A happy belated Mardi Gras and a blessed Lent to all of you. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.